Our fans are demanding more mouse models. So you've got ANG2 induced hypertension, especially on a 129 SVEV background. You have nephrotoxic serum. You have the Akita mouse. You can also do the Akita mice with the renin transgene. The Akita mouse with a unilateral nephrectomy. You can do the OBOB leptin deficiency or the DBDB puromycin aminonucleoside nephrosis or PAN subtotal nephrectomy or what some people refer to as a 5-6. The NEP25 mouse. This is a mouse with a humanized CD25 receptor on the podocyte LMB2. Um, I really enjoy the diphtheria toxin to the podocyte. This is just destruction of the podocyte. You have the CD2AP knockout mouse. The podocyte gumbo pan fried, deep fried, stir fried. There's pineapple shrimp, lemon shrimp, coconut shrimp, pepper shrimp, shrimp soup, shrimp stew, shrimp salad, shrimp and potatoes, shrimp burger, shrimp sandwich. That's that's about it. Freely Filtered, the twice-a-month podcast that summarizes and pontificates on the most recent NEFJC Journal Club. NEFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the articles that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. You should talk with your doctor before making any medical decisions. This podcast discusses off-label and unlicensed medications. My name is Joel Toff, but most people know me better as Kidney Boy. And today I'm joined by Jenny. My name is Jenny Lin. I am a physician scientist at Northwestern University. Matt. Hi, everybody. This is Matt Sparks. I'm a nephrologist at Duke University. Swapno. Hi, I'm Swapnil Harmat. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. And this week, unfortunately, we're missing Samira. This week, we're going to be talking about Mentor. Mentor is a trial that we've been waiting for a long time. We've been waiting for contemporary randomized controlled trial data on idiopathic membranous. Membranous is one of the leading causes of nephrotic syndrome, and Mentor compares the hot new drug, rituximab, versus one of the old staples, which is cyclosporin. Cyclosporin is not what is recommended as the first-line therapy by KDigo. KDigo recommends a modified Ponticelli regimen, which is uh, cyclophosphamide and IV methylprednisolone. Unfortunately, that first-line treatment is pretty toxic, and a lot of physicians try to avoid using it. So functionally, the first-line treatment has become calcineurine inhibitors, either cyclosporin or tacrolimus. The study was set up as a non-inferiority design. We're going to talk more about that. But the short answer here is rituximab was non-inferior to cyclosporin and on a secondary analysis was superior to cyclosporin for their primary outcome. And we're going to go deep into this. This was actually presented in 2017 at ASN Kidney Week in New Orleans, and it took almost two years to reach publication. And so we've actually known about this result for a while and likely has altered practice patterns. And so my question for the group and maybe the audience is, should we be more strict on presentation of clinical trials that have the potential to change clinical practice at large scientific meetings before the paper is published? 
I know we have had this discussion before with uh, Pexivas, I think, on the Twitter sphere, where you you have been very vocal about not changing practice until the full paper is seen. Or I think the the investigators need to be more patient. If it's going to take them two years to write the paper and get through the publication process, maybe we should, you know, hold the presentation until we get closer to, to publication. That's a fantastic question from an outsider perspective, right? But if you talk to these people who are doing clinical trials, it's so complicated when, you know, the whole act of getting the simultaneous publication, which we now take for granted for uh, late-breaking, high-impact trials, takes a huge amount of work. And, and there's so many other factors. You know, journals will want some other analysis. The reviewers will say, hey, this is not enough. I have reviewed a paper for Lancet, which was fast-tracked into publication along with the conference and they gave me 48 hours to review this was two years so (laughs) (laughs) so 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 you know you need reviewers who will deliver on time and the reviewers have to say this is pretty good this is acceptable if the reviewers say no no this is not acceptable there goes your you know simultaneous publication Uh, with pexivas i've i've been you know nagging mike walsh and there's so many other factors behind the scenes you know some additional analysis authors wanting this authors wanting that the journal wanting something else uh what kind of spin do you want to put on the results? And if the authors had settled for a different journal, not New England, maybe it would have come out in 2017. Absolutely. And, and maybe there should be like a, you know, open access repository where the paper should be dumped like MedArxiv or something like that. I think there are details in the methods of this study that really call into question the generalizability of the results. And um, oh, there you go. I'm showing off now. <laughs> and these are things that I would have missed in a plenary presentation. I'm siding with Matt that I think you can't be changing practice based on what you see in the the five or 10 minute presentation that they get in a late breaking trials. You really do need to wait for the full publication, especially with things as complex as immunosuppressive therapy for glomerular nephritis. Yeah. And what we had with Credence was it was unveiled and then right after it just came out, right? Yeah. That's perfect, right? That's the best if they can get simultaneous publication. Swap, you're doing our methods for mentor? Mentor methods. Nothing to do with mice. This was a human study. It was done in people, not in mice. <laughs> Didn't these patients have Heyman nephropathy? What is Heyman? Isn't that what it's I called? This started, this started yeah. nephritis. nephritis. This started nephritis. the entire mouse and animal modeling. I mean, this was it. This was membranous. This was a way to create membranous in mice, right? That was That's the whole Heyman nephritis thing, right? Exactly. Right. With the subepithelial deposits, that's the key. They haven't been able to recapitulate with phospholipase A2 receptor in mice, like overexpression, and they've been working on that. Mm. Wait, who's working <laughs> okay. on that? Like the Beck lab? Yeah, many, many labs are. I think Sue was involved in one of the publications. Really? Sue making mouse models now? It's hard to imagine. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, she might have more models that she has let go than I just mentioned. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm pretty sure she owns half the basement at Northwestern. Half the mouse basement. (laughs) Basement memory. Okay. She's Canadian, right? She is Canadian, yeah. Mm -hmm. She did a fellowship in Yale, I think, though. And so after she went back. Where was she before Northwestern? Was she at University of Toronto? Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. Toronto. St. Mike's. Yeah. Yeah. Jordan Weinstein and... Okay, methods, methods. Methods, methods. Let's get back to action. So, uh, Mentor was a non-inferiority trial. So, I'm an epidemiology guy, so I have to chat a little bit about the methods. Uh, Actually, Mansi Bapat has written a very nice uh, piece 
on FGC on non-inferiority trials. These are slightly different uh, and tricky to understand. So, so I would strongly recommend people who want to know a little bit more about it, check out what she's written. Can you give us the quick and dirty though? Yeah, the, the quick and dirty is that uh, a superiority trial is makes sense if you think uh, you've got a new agent which is better than the previous standard of care. On the other hand, if you have got two agents which you think are going to be similar, what kind of a study design should it be? People would say, hey, you want a bioequivalence kind of a study where they are exactly the same. So, but if you want a difference to be zero between two agents as far as the effect size is concerned, then your sample size will be infinity. So you can't do that, obviously, or, you know, a few million patients. So what do you do then? So you pick a margin and the the whole argument comes out to what is the margin, right? So in this case, for example, they took a 15% margin. So uh, they expected the uh, remission, uh, complete or partial remission to be 45% in cyclosporin. And they said, hey, uh, so they took 30%. 30% is the least acceptable uh, rate of partial or complete remission with uh, rituximab. Now, what this means is 45 versus 30. 30 is not the effect size they would expect with rituximab. The, the 95% confidence intervals of the effect size should not cross 30. So uh, if, if, for example, cyclosporin was 45, exactly 45, and rituximab was 38, with the 95% confidence intervals being 31 to 47, it would be considered non-inferior. On the other hand, if the effect size of uh, rituximab was 33 with confidence intervals of 25 to 40, then you would have to say non-inferiority was not shown. So if the confidence interval goes below that lower bound, then you fail your non-inferiority assessment? Exactly. And it has to be completely below the non-inferiority margin to be called inferior. But they allow like some leeway, right, for other trade-offs, like in terms of like side effects and, you know, ease. Right, right. And that, exactly, exactly. And that's the whole point, right? You may say, hey, why should you choose something, you know, if it's 45 versus uh, something that is 35 to 42, right? So clearly the 95% margin is below the point estimate for cyclosporin. Then you would say, hey, it is inferior, but it is within that 15% margin. And the, why would you accept something like that? You would accept it because, for example, it could be cheaper, which is not true for uh, rituximab, but it could be easier to administer, right? You're taking a pill every day. You don't know about adherence versus mm-hmm. uh, rituximab, right? You give a couple of doses and you're done. So the adherence would potentially be better. Some people would say, hey, maybe the side effect profile is better. Uh, you don't have to monitor creatinine and electrolytes and all that uh, so rigorously as you have to do with cyclosporin. On the other hand, of course, you have to look at B cells and stuff. Okay. So I, I want to make sure I get this right. There's a few different possibilities when you do the study. One, you're completely below this lower bound and then you're going to be an inferior, right? Mm-hmm. And then two, you can straddle the bound and then you're neither inferior nor equivalent. You're not non-inferior. You're not non-inferior, but you're not inferior either. Is that right? Right. That's a, that is that's exactly where you are when you straddle. And, and this is where the semantics are, right? So so if the uh, if the upper bound also is less than forty five, you know, you and I would understand it as being inferior. Yeah. Right. And but but by the if you choose the margin as being, you know, that 15%, then you have to say, you know, it's not non-inferior. No one likes that terminology, right? It's not English in in some respects. Right. Okay. So, okay. And then then there's the possibility of not superior, and then there's superior. Exactly. Would be all the possibilities. Wow. Right. That's kind of nuts. It is. It is. Uh, so, so there is a very nice figure which we have included in Mansi's uh, summary, which shows those uh, forest plots and the interpretation of the forest plots. Now, okay. now, now there is a tricky part, right? So people may say, hey, uh, if you have got a new drug and you say, hey, you know, uh, cyclosporin uh, and you say, hey, tacrolimus is non-inferior and it's like minus five. 
and it's still not inferior and then new drug comes in you know uh, jololimus and that is uh, even inferior compared to tacrolimus but it's still within the non inferiority then that's biocreep so there are many problems with non inferiority trials yeah but 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 perry talked about biocreep i don't know when we were talking about it. he said it wasn't a big important he wasn't he he was not impressed with the argument about biocreep that you keep stacking non inferiority mm-hmm. to on top of non inferiority to get something that doesn't right. work at all he thought that was that that was more theoretical right. than real. Um, uh, was that just a was that a Twitter check? Yeah, yeah it is. But it's uh, it's so in oncology. You know, people there are all these new molecules that come in, and people play all sorts of games with the drug companies. So it's it's a theoretical concern. Rituximab is a recurrent player with non inferiority over and over again. Rituximab gets these non inferiority trials, and I, we don't see them all that much in nephrology. But uh, Rituximab recurrently non inferior. Yeah, it, it is, it is coming becoming more popular, right? So credence also all those diabetes trials were non inferiority. Uh, Pivotal was non inferiority on iron. And it turned out to be non-inferior and superior. And again, that makes sense, right? You're giving a little bit more iron and a little bit less iron. Why should one be superior to the other? I think it's legitimate as long as you choose the margin fairly. Uh, but let's uh, step back a little bit before. Uh, you, you said cyclosporin is the, has become the default standard of care. Um, and, and I'm not sure it's how true it is everywhere. I, I don't know about you guys, but I was asking around and in Ottawa, we still use Monticelli. Oh, really? With cyclophosphamide. Um, and... Yeah, and and Ali was, uh, you know, Ali Poyan on Glomcon. He was uh, he was leading the charge on Twitter, saying that you know people still use cyclophosphamide, and JC was saying they use cyclophosphamide. Christos was saying they use cyclophosphamide. So I don't know. There seems to be some. Although Liz Lightstone says she does, right, but she's rituximab, <laughs> right? She's a huge fan of rituximab. Sure, she's yeah. right. In the article, they say that cyclosporin has become the functional standard of care in North America. And they reference a review article by Catran. Uh, yes. Is that how you pronounce yeah, it? Catran. Yeah, Dan Catran. Catran. Yeah. Dan Catran at University of Toronto. And so I pulled that article. It's actually a really good article, but there's not any data that talks about the standard of care. They didn't survey people. It's just what they do in Toronto. Exactly. But in that article, it talks about, and it's something that I've felt when I've had patients here, is that it's difficult to get daily methylprednisolone, one gram for three days in a row. Like, are you going to admit the patient for three days for that? Are you going to get an infusion? I don't know. what. When I've done Ponticelli, I've admitted the patient. What have you guys done when you've done Ponticelli? So that's the other problem that came out in the thread that Aisha started uh, after the mentor chat about what kind of Ponticelli do people use? People use all flavors of Ponticelli, right? So we don't do uh, the IV uh, methylprednisolone at all. You don't? Yeah. You can give a huge slug of prednisone. Yeah. Just P- yeah, Whatever. I mean, you can do that, but you have no data that that's... <laughs> Is there a non-inferiority story? Non-inferiority story? I mean, we, we. I was lucky and had a patient that lived fairly close by, and we set it up in our infusion room um, and just came in, got it, went home, came, got it, went home, and then... It worked out nicely, but I would say that we are starting to shift more towards rituximab first line, but we do use modified Ponticelli, and there's also considerations for what insurance will cover, uh, which will modify that decision. I have not had problems with insurance and rituximab from membranous. It Usually, they see that it's an indicated drug, and it hasn't been a problem. Well, if they have insurance, is guess what it, is what I meant. But just as a reminder, we're not comparing Ponticelli and rituximab with this. Right, right. And that's exactly my point is, you know, so so by some standards, in, in Ottawa uh, and in some centers, 
Pondicelli is the first line. Uh, and I would argue that maybe the, you're comparing a second line therapy with the third line therapy and not doing the first line. Uh, now, again, this is not true for all centers uh, everywhere. So a, a survey uh, would have been nice. Um, and I'm not alone, right? So there were a lot of people who were saying, hey, why not cyclophosphamide? And I think uh, Fernando Fervenza, who did end up joining the chat, he's the lead author on this study. He said that they were having trouble recruiting uh, centers that would actually agree to use cyclophosphamide. Exactly. He, he did say that. So, you know, it wasn't like they didn't think of it. But if you can't get the numbers, and we're talking low numbers here, it was 65 in each arm. So this is not thousands. But this patients. exactly shows you, right, that there are all these opinions. There are strong opinions like Dan Catran's that this is the way it should be done. Right. Uh, and they drive uh, the discussion. Obviously, if they would have asked our center, we would have been happy. Or Ali's center, they would have been happy. But but we didn't get asked. Uh, anyway, that's let's just shelve the discussion and move on. Uh, Even if it's not against the first line drug, it is an option that's used a lot. Mm-hmm. Cyclosporin mm-hmm. is used a lot. Calcineurin inhibitors are used a lot. And showing that this drug would ultimately show, they want to show equivalence, but they actually showed superiority by my read. This is important, right? This absolutely moves the field forward. This is an important piece of data that's going to change how we treat patients with idiopathic membranous. Two years ago. (laughs) 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 All right. Since since I started this discussion, let me move on. The uh, patient population. Uh, I I think this was nicely done because uh, in membranous, you can often have spontaneous remission. Uh, So they did want to select patients who are, you know, not those kind of patients. Um, So they had to be adult patients. The renal biopsy was actually seen and reviewed by Dr. Farvenza and Dan Catran all their biopsies of all the patients who were recruited and two other renal pathologists. That's, you know, intense. It's, it's nicely done. Um, and they had to have more than five grams of proteinuria measured twice over 14 days. So not just one uh, measurement with a 24-hour urine, no ACRs or PCRs. Uh, they were 24-hour urine believers. And on top of that, they had to have be on renin angiotensin system blockade and with the renin angiotensin system blockade the reduction in proteinuria would be less than 50 percent so you know that is sort of you know choosing patients who are truly having membranous and are not going to go into spontaneous remission it was a long run and they had to be on this ras inhibition for like three months right, right? right. so if they were not on uh, ras inhibition then they had to go on ras inhibition with the run-in period for three months exactly their blood pressure renin oh renin. god i'm so sorry a renin <laughs> renin renin <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you woke up in the run-in. The renin angiotensin yeah. in the sparks, run-in phase. Uh, <laughs> alarm clock. It just so, it's just me saying renin and he immediately sparks up. <laughs> creatinine clearance had to be more than 40 ml per minute. They they don't say GFR. They say creatinine clearance in the main paper. Though in the, oh. in the supplement, uh, they do say um, eGFR was also acceptable. But they were doing 24-hour urine anyways, right? So I think they did a 24-hour urinary creatinine uh, clearance. Uh, and no, that's what no they they were actually doing. Yeah, so so it's okay. 40 is fine. Now, the intervention, since we are talking about the interventions, they, in the intervention arm, they got a gram of uh, rituximab on day one and day 15, two doses. If by six months, the proteinuria was uh, was reduced by at least 25%, but not complete remission, they got two more doses of rituximab. So two doses in the beginning, and at six months, if they had some reduction, but not enough, uh, they got another two doses of rituximab. And if they didn't get a 25% reduction, they were just a treatment failure and they're done. Right. So less than 25% is a treatment failure and they were done. Yeah, exactly. So it was uh, no further rituximab was given in that case. On the other hand, for cyclosporin, so they gave only cyclosporin. They didn't give any steroids. And I'm curious, if when you give cyclosporin, do you give steroids? You guys? No? I didn't. Okay. But it didn't work, so I'm not sure if I'm a good advantage. <laughs> I've never given it. You've never given cyclosporin? Uh-uh. 
Yeah. For members. So what do you use? For <laughs> transplants a lot. But even then, for us, it's mainly TAC. <laughs> so, so, so you use, oh, use yeah. I use TAC also. But do you use TAC with modified Ponticelli? Do you use TAC with steroids or not steroids? Jenny, TAC with steroids or TAC with mm-hmm. no steroids? Oh, no, I haven't done it with membranous. So, so what do you do for membranous? Retax. But I but it could be because I'm I was finishing training. Then came up. Yeah. You know, around Yeah, I went from a mont- a modified Ponticelli time to Retax. Right. Which is interesting, right? So you you didn't use CNIs, both of you. I've used everything. I've used it in a mouse model of kidney disease. Which, which mouse model? Which one? <laughs> the cyclosporin model. <laughs> yeah. I, I. <laughs> Which is which would play into the rationale, right, of getting away from it if it can induce fibrosis in ma- mice. You don't want to do that. There's definitely not a rituximab version of kidney disease. Anyway, so cyclosporin. <laughs> so they did not give steroids with the cyclosporin. Uh, they targeted a trough level of 125 to 175. And if complete remission was seen at six months, uh, cyclosporin was tapered and stopped over two months. Uh, if the protein urea reduction, again, was less than 25%, it was a treatment failure. And if the protein urea was reduced, but, you know, not a complete remission, cyclosporin was continued. You know, they didn't get any more cyclosporin or any different regime or anything. Now, now the tricky part is here. No, it was, I think it was just continued for another six months. I just They just got a year. They right? got a year, but if, if they had complete remission at six months, they stopped cyclosporin. No, that's right. But if it was a partial remission, yeah, they can, or coming, it, if it, it was le- more than 25%, right. they continued the cyclosporin to complete a year. Right, they completed a year. But then at one year, they tapered it off over two months. And their taper was fast. It was very fast. It was a two-month taper. Exactly. So, right. And this is this is one of those details that you don't get in a plenary session, or you may not get in a plenary session, but I mean, this doesn't seem like the way most people use calcium urine inhibitors, the whole criticism about this drug is it causes that, that when you pull away the drug, the drug, the disease relapses. And so you're supposed to be real careful and slowly back off the drug. Exactly. So, so we never taper it off. Whenever we give it, we don't taper it over two months. And invariably, when you taper it so fast, you get a relapse. So this is like, this is like setting up cyclosporin for failure. Yes. Yes. Uh, and the other thing, and the other thing was if they had a bump in their creatinine, they took them off. They lowered the dose of cyclosporin, right? Yeah. And so patients that have, and maybe that maybe that bump in creatinine is because of CS, uh, CNI. Uh, CNI toxicity, but maybe it's from progressive disease. And if it's progressive disease, should you really be lowering your therapeutic agent? Absolutely. Well, I don't know. Absolutely. It seems a bit concerning. Yeah, yeah. So if the creatinine level went up by 30%, they decreased the um, dose of the cyclosporin. Okay, swap. No, we've gotten through the intervention. We talked about the statistics. What else do you want to talk yeah, no, about? The outcome. So the, uh, the outcome oh, was yeah. exactly. The, so the outcome is complete or partial remission at 24 months. And uh, that was the primary outcome. Now, complete remission defined as proteinuria. Primary outcome is complete or par- a composite of complete or partial remission at 24 months. Right. right. And, and hold, stop. That's, yeah, it. that's it. So hold the thought at 24 months. Okay, I'll come back to that. But just let me say what was complete remission, which was proteinuria less than 0.3 grams per 24 hours uh, with the serum albumin more than 3.5 and uh, partial remission. So, you know, no proteinuria. And partial remission was between 0.3 to 3.5 um, 
of uh, proteinuria per day. So th- those definitions are pretty standard and that's acceptable. And they had a bunch of other uh, secondary outcomes. Um, and they also had, you know, ESRD and initiation of dialysis and renal transplantation. Think about the 24 months. So cyclosporin is being stopped at 14 months. You know, 12 months it is being tapered, 14 months it's gone. And you're not looking at the rate of remission at 12 months as a primary outcome or six months as a primary outcome. You're saying, hey, let's have them without cyclosporin for 10 months and then let's see what's the rate of remission um, in, in cyclosporin versus rituximab. So to me, that's like, again, just to emphasize, it's setting up cyclosporin for failure. Well, they're trying to see if they can fix the disease, right? Like the rituximab is only given for two weeks and they're checking it, you know, 50 weeks later. Or no, no, 100 102 weeks later, right? Yeah, 102 weeks later. Exactly. But we know, as you said, we know that when you taper cyclosporin, the disease comes back. It's not like cyclophosphamide where you hit the disease and it goes away. If it goes away, it often goes away and doesn't always come back. So that's that's like, it's a different drug. Um, the um, analysis was, uh, we talked about the non-inferiority stuff already. We're assuming that it would be, uh, the difference would be 15%. You know, the, the uh, non-inferiority stuff is not really explained properly in the main paper. They say 55% in rituximab and 45 in cyclosporin. That That's a difference of 10% with, with rituximab being superior. That makes zero sense. I don't know how New England allowed that to go through. Uh, they explain it much better in the um, supplement. And curiously, uh, you know, I was asking uh, Dr. Farvenza during the chat, where did the 15% come from? And he's like, oh, it, it's very complicated. I'll, I'll send you an email if, uh, if you want. And Pablo just... Pablo Garcia, uh, he he took a snapshot of the supplement which I hadn't got to at that time, and he tweeted that out saying, "Hey, this is the uh, this is what it is," <laughs> which is kind of fun. he supplements. Yeah, you. exactly. Uh, it is it is a nice uh, fifty nine pages. Of supplement. It, it is. You know that's why it took two years, Matt, because they had uh, so many pages and so many tables. Yeah. Well, that just goes to show if you have to do forty nine or fifty nine pages of supplement, then you know wait a little bit of time and get that yeah. stuff worked out. And they had a bunch of secondary outcomes, too. It's like just data. Exactly. They, they had a lot of secondary outcomes. And there's also a few other things that we The PLA-2 and all that stuff. Like yeah. what? They did do a uh, Bonferroni uh, modification just for one of the outcomes, right? Yeah, for the uh, I think for the 12-month. I think for the 12-month, right. Um, and the, the last point in the methods, I would say, is the trial was funded by um, Genentech, the manufacturer of rituximab. It's very clearly said that this is an investigator-initiated trial. Genentech had no role in the design of the study. They had no role in the analysis. They had no role in, you know, the writing and nothing at all. So they just gave a bunch of money and they gave the rituximab for free. Exactly. So so that part is very clean. Uh, they mentioned during the chat that they chose uh, cyclosporin because it was a lot cheaper than tacrylamus. And they had to buy it. Exactly. They had to buy it at market rates. Matt, you're going to talk about some results? I think so. Let's get to the results. I think everyone's ready for this. Hey, wait. Is this, <laughs> this is not a blinded trial. Everybody, this is all open label. Is that right? Well, I think it'd be hard to blind because you have one infusion and one with a right. the med. There's no placebo that was given. You can double dummy it. Yeah. So I guess this, unfortunately, Samira is not able to give her capsulology. Hey. If there's no blinding, there's no Samira. That's the way it rolls. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Got that. I think the good thing about this is there is actually, it, you spend more time in the supplementary figures than the actual figures. So we'll briefly summarize this as a, as a March 2012 to September 2015. Um, you can look at the consort diagram and supplementary figure S2. The total of 182 patients were screened in 22 sites in North America. 54 were excluded for mostly not meeting the inclusion criteria. 
130 were enrolled, and 65 were randomly assigned to each group. Right. Their power analysis required them to have 63 in each group, so they barely made it. And interestingly enough, all of the 65 were included in the intention to treat data analysis. Only two patients discontinued the intervention in the rituximab group. However, in the cyclosporin group, there were 11 patients or 17% that discontinued the intervention. So moving on to table one, these are the participants in each study arm, and they were fairly evenly matched in terms of baseline characteristics. Just to go over some uh, that would be pertinent, um, majority of the patients were middle-aged men. They were about 52 years of age in both groups. 77% were male. Can you help me out? It, am I missing something? Membranous affects men and women equally, right? I thought it was it had a two-to-one male predominant. Well, that's what we have here. Clearly a two-to-one male predominant. <laughs> so I bet you're right on that we one. We got it. Yeah. It looks like it is <laughs> here. Uh, so the, the mean albumin was 2.5 in both groups, creatinine 1.3. They had a lot of proteinuria, 8.9 grams in 24 hours, and a spot protein creatinine ratio of 6.2. And this is after, these are patients though that went through the run-in that- Yeah, this is on RAS inhibition. That is- yeah. And their creatinine clearance was about 85 in both groups, so they had preserved kidney function. There was no mention of race or ethnicity. Uh, I, you know, I thought at least they, sh- they could have- had that somewhere in the 59 pages of supplementary data, but wasn't there. I guess the presumption is that they're probably all European ancestry, right? Mm-hmm. I guess you, yeah, but uh, was not, that was not explicitly, uh, at least I couldn't find it. Now, as far as antibodies are concerned, 96 patients or 74% had a positive antiphospholipase A2 receptor, and only one patient had a positive thrombospondin 7A positive, and that individual was randomized into the rituximab group. The mean level of phospholipase A2 receptor was in the 400. I'm sorry, 400, was that, that's, a, that's a concentration? Like what? It's a unit per mil. Which is not standard. This is not the commercial assay I get most a, people When I get use. a PLA2R, I get a titer, right? Like 1 to 41 to 80, something like that. I don't get a level. I get a level where I order it. I think I think different labs can do it differently. If you and I went to the supplementary data to see if they like had the, you know, the what lab they did it at, but they had the exact protocol and with all the reagents and everything. So it looks like um, it wasn't done at a standardized, you know, referral laboratory. Fair enough. Okay. From what I could tell. But what's interesting about this is that if you break down the phospholipase A2 receptors by sex, you have uh, some a really uh, disjointed. Uh, amount. So the females, if you look at them, they had a uh, a level of, in the rituximab group of about 180. However, in the cyclosporin group, their phospholipase A2 receptor was 534. And if you look at the males, it was just the opposite, that they had a higher level in the rituximab group at 382 and a lower in the cyclosporin at 168. So it wasn't a random assortment of phospholipase A2 receptor and you know based on sex. So that's going to come into play later on. So we already just mentioned the primary outcome, which was a uh, at 24 months after randomization, a composite of complete remission or partial remission. How did rituximab fare against cyclosporin in this study? And we will first start at the 12 month period. At the end of 12 months, rituximab was non-inferior to cyclosporin in terms of the composite primary outcome that we just mentioned. 60% achieved the composite outcome in the rituximab arm versus 52% for the cyclosporin arm, which gave a p-value of 0.04 for non-inferiority. If you look at 24 months, which is what the trial was actually designed for, rituximab actually fared superior to cyclosporin and non-inferior, um, and it was a 60%. It stayed in the rituximab group. 
and it fell down to 20% in the cycle spore. So if I can interrupt on the p-value, lest people uh, uh, don't understand it. For the 12 month, the p-value of 0.004 is not showing any superiority. All it means is that the uh, rituximab, uh, it's not comparing rituximab to cyclosporin. It is comparing rituximab to that 30%, sorry, 15% margin that we had. So it was very comfortably above the 15%. So it was... Yeah, if you look exactly. at the figure, they have a little dotted line drawn and it's just right above that. But my question is, how do you even have superiority if you, your trial was down for, designed for non-inferiority? Why can't you just go ahead and, and analyze it for both? Uh, they do analyze it. For- yeah, should is that normal to have a non-inferiority trial and just do both? Right, so it's kind of a hierarchical. If it is... If it is non-inferior, if it is non-inferior. Yeah, if it is non-inferior, then only you, you can, can test on. for superiority. So it's kind of hierarchical. So, but, but Pivotal was like that, right? It was non-inferior and it was also superior, uh, proactive ion. You know, people have objected to these kind of things, saying it's not symmetrical. There is a nice paper by a guy called Scott Eberreg, I think. Uh, he's uh, He tweets at MedEvidence blog. And he's talking about uh, this, this non-inferiority stuff is like a looking glass, like a mirror. Uh, so it's not symmetrical. A study which would be considered non-inferior because it's designed as a non-inferiority study, if you had a superiority study, you know, it would be considered inferior. So what if we look just at complete remission? So what's the possibility of reaching complete remission? So in order to do that, you've got to flip to the supplementary table S7. And if you look at that at 24 months in the intention to treat population, you have complete remission occurring in 35% of patients that receive rituximab and zero in cyclosporin. Right. So in- instead of just hammering through all the possible numbers, rituximab beats the pants off of cyclosporin in this study, right? It really it does. does. Yeah. It crushes it. it, it cru- especially at 12 months and 24 months, the way they administered uh, cyclosporin and the way they were administered rituximab. Rituximab was way better. It got a lot more patients to the primary outcome, which was a composite of partial and complete remission. And it wasn't even close if you just looked at complete remission. Right. But at 12 months, it was kind of similar. Maybe your numbers were a little bit one or two off. At 12 months, patients were still on cyclosporin. Uh, at 24 months, there's no cyclosporin in the system. So, you know, I would say, hey, why is that surprising? Because we take drugs to cure people. Right, I mean, yeah, it's not like hypertension; we have to be on drugs forever. Right, this is this is supposed to fix the disease. Well, at twelve months, you have five or four point five percent in cyclosporin and complete remission versus fourteen percent in the rituximab. So, and rituximab is going to take longer to work, whereas cyclosporin quicker, and maybe the duration is not as there. But uh, so, what, let's move on to the pre-specified subgroups. And so, uh, that's uh, S five. Rituximab was better in all subgroups that were that were seen. And the one that actually showed, and, and so those subgroups are female sex, male sex, young, old, a lot of proteinuria greater than eight, less than eight, phospholipase A2 receptor being uh, greater than 40, less than 40. And the only one that sort of kind of came close to being a wash was anyone who had seen immunosuppressive therapy before. But the one with interaction was female sex, and and that uh, was looked at a little closer. So if you go to table six... And so the it, it seems that rituximab is way better in women than in men, right? Yeah, it appears so, but I'm going to... Yeah, so that that's what the, the interaction shows that... Uh, for female sex, it worked really, really well, rituximab versus male, which still worked in male, but not, you know, like really worked. And so like basically every single person, almost every single person had a response in a female sex, but to the cyclosporin, um, 
no one had a response. But this is going back, is this, are we going back to the baseline PLA-2R? And that's what disrupts it. Once you look at the PLA-2R, this dis- this difference goes away. If you go to table S6, where they adjust for phospholipase A2 receptor, after you adjust for the level, that interaction is gone. So the next question, and I think we're all interested in, in these phospholipase A2 receptors because we're measuring them and we're trying to understand how this works. And so what data is there in this trial to show how the phospholipase A2 receptor levels and the proteinuria levels change over time in patients that had complete or partial remission uh, during this trial? And that's in supplementary figure S10. So basically, the levels drop at a faster rate and a lower level in the rituximab group compared to, to cyclosporin. And you see a fairly similar trend that occurs in, 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 the, in the proteinuria. So this is all kind of consistent with what we've seen before with PLA-2R, that reduction in uh, PLA-2R antibody levels results in improved clinical outcomes. Right. Or it precedes it. Precedes, precedes it. it right? That's right. It precedes it and predicts it, right? That if you track it, mm-hmm. patients that drop their PLA2Rs are going to do well. But I think on the same side of that discussion is that you also have, you can also do the same thing with looking at proteinuria. But so the, it's not really showing that the proteinuria, the, the level was dropping that much faster in the phospholipase A2 receptor. You're going to see clinical outcomes improve um, simultaneously. I think, I forget which paper. They were looking at this. It may have been actually in the original PLA-2R paper. Oh, and Gemrotux, right? Where you do end up dropping your PLA-2, your circulating PLA-2R levels before. That's what I you thought. You see the reduction in uh, proteinuria because you can clear the antibody from your system, circulating system, but then you still need time to clear the subepithelial deposits from the kidney so that the proteinuria will lag behind. Um, so I think, you know, going back to what I wrote in the summary, referencing the Gemrotux trial, uh, one of the things they were so hopeful about was the fact that when they looked back, you did have the reduction in PLA-2R. And they were wondering if they just cut the time points a little bit too, a little bit too quickly for that trial. Right. Yeah. Maybe if you did it like at two or three months and they didn't actually do any analysis that compared, they compared retu- uh Rituximab versus cyclosporin, but not really antiphospholipase A2 versus proteinuria. They're just sort of in the same figure. They've got a lot of publications that they got to get out of this. You know, I'd expect that. Yeah. I'd expect that at the rate they're I going, think, maybe in five or six yeah. years, we'll see the next one. <laughs> um, and the last piece, of, or not the last piece of data, but you know, we already talked Please about be the, the last piece of data. That was Please. It, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, we need to go to the adverse events. Okay. Well, what's your last piece of data before so we get important. to the adverse event? Yeah. So, figure two. We over time what. You know, treatment failure in both groups. And if you look, that 25% of the patients had treatment failure in Tuximab group versus like almost 75% in cyclo, cyclosporin group over the two years. Um, but the last bit that we, you no, know, and, adverse and the, events and the, are important. And exactly what uh, Swapnil has been hammering on is if you look at that 12 months when the cyclosporin group is no longer on any drug, nobody could be on drug by their protocol, that's when they're that's when their outcomes just tumble. That's when they hit. That's when they have the treatment failure over after treatment failure between twelve and eighteen months. So adverse events. I don't think there was anything too surprising here. There was increased creatinine levels and gastrointestinal events in in the cyclosporin arm versus 
rituximab. Pruritus and infusion-related reactions were more frequent in rituximab. Only one patient developed end-stage kidney disease, and that happened to be in the cyclosporin group. No cancers occurred, no deaths occurred. Quality of life metrics, which was a secondary outcome, was really no, no differences that were seen. And that's surprising, right? Because wouldn't, wasn't that one of the selling points, the adverse events and the quality of life supposed to be the rationale for that inferiority margin? Exactly. It is. I think that is surprising as well. But definitely, you're, you, there's more events that occurred in the cyclosporin arm that were of obviously the creatinine issue. We know about that. Um, more people had to, had to stop the medication, which I think that's also an important thing to note. So Jenny created this introduction, but it was very long and we wanted to get to the study right away. So instead of putting it before we discuss the study, we've put it at the end. Here it is. Jenny, you want to give us some background? Okay. So I wrote a long detailed summary on uh, the mentor trial and it included a lot of background. And the reason I did this, and it's a little bit longer than what we usually do at NEFJC, is that it is July and this is also a very classic uh, nephrotic syndrome disease. And keeping new fellows, residents, and medical students in mind, I just wanted to be able to provide a little bit more background and history behind it, especially since Mentor comes 10 years after the initial publication of uh, the PLA2R antibody, uh, which was somewhat groundbreaking in the field because we finally had a causal antibody that's directly related to the pathophysiology of disease, something that could have implications for monitoring clinically and how you would conduct clinical trials. And then now with Mentor and the use of rituximab, which targets B cells, we have a therapy that is a little bit more in line with the pathophysiology of this autoimmune disease that results in subepithelial deposits. Um, so as Joel mentioned, primary membranous is a leading cause of non-diabetic nephrotic syndrome among adults and is seen predominantly in white men. In the summary that I provided, uh, we included links and as well as pictures of the original description by pathologist Dr. David Jones in 1957. And in this paper, Jones noted that he suspected there was an autoantibody formation that could be uh, driving disease. And so um, going back to Matt's long list of mouse models, Heyman nephritis was one of them. Uh, and Matt, like, what was your understanding of how Heyman nephritis modeled this disease? I don't have a good understanding of it, but I know they're trying to grind up different antigens that might be displayed in the podocyte. Or back then, I think mesangial cells was the thought, and then see if they could recapitulate the disease. And I think it was a rat model. Yeah, it was in a rat. Yeah. Uh, but what was interesting was they injected these ground up kidneys right into the peritoneal space of the mice. And then, you know, these ground up kidney parts did not cross the peritoneal membrane. Yet there were antibodies circulating and sticking down into the kidneys and forming these subepithelial deposits. So um, it was a really cool model. So the idea was you put the, you, you didn't know what the antigen was, but you ground up these kidneys, you put them in the peritoneal space, the rat forms antibodies to those, and those antibodies cross-react with something that's in the rat's podocyte or rat's yes. kidney. Okay. Yeah. So it's like autoimmune, but it's not, it's not like the antibodies are clinging onto these ground up uh, kidneys and transporting them anywhere. You're just using the, the you're in, just uh, inoculating them to generate the antibodies, which then uh, the, yes. it's an autoantibody response and then that attacks the kidney. Exactly. Wild. Yeah. Okay, cool. So that is really cool, cool right? Yeah. Um, later, I think it wasn't in, in, initially. And then wait, rewind. Why couldn't they figure out what the freaking antibody was? Like, why was that so hard? Can't you just dilute the antibodies from the from the <laughs> kidney? They're in, they're in humps. They're called humps. Can't you just micro dissect <laughs> them? 
I don't know. Matt, and this is you? why Joel is not. In I'm the not lab. in a lab. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just walking around the hospital. Just oh, why don't you just dilute the honor? Yes, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> And why scientists. is it so hard? <laughs> Put me in charge. I get this thing solved in a week. <laughs> yeah, so so we have this autoimmune disease, right? I cross-react, but in humans, megalin is not in the podocyte. Okay, rewind. And that's where Larry Beck's group came in. Okay, rewind just for a second. So that means with this Heyman nephritis, do I have the right name? Heyman, yeah. Heyman nephritis is a good representation of the phenotype of membranous nephropathy. The histopathological findings. Histopathological findings and uh, presumably the the myoclonal proteinuria sure. and the nephrotic and all that. But mechanistically, besides the fact there was antibodies deposited in the kidney, it wasn't the same disease, right? The antigen no. was absolutely the, the antibody was the wrong it was the wrong antibody. And the wrong and the wrong, wrong and the wrong yeah. and the wrong receptor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and this is where Larry Beck's that, group that's the utility of right. mice models, right? And it's a rat, actually. Just if they had mice, they would have had this thing solved forever ago. But the rat, okay, go on. Fast forwards us over to 2009 when Beck, uh, you know, they I'm did sorry, a translational what year was the study. Heyman nephritis. What year is this? Is it like the 60s? 1959 derailed us for 50 years. Rat. <laughs> okay, rats derailed us for 50. There are years. more models than Heyman nephritis, and they were all I can wrong. Go through them 50 again. years of wrong rat models. Okay, go on. Please tell me what happened with Dr. Beck. So Larry Beck, right, he comes up with this, or he and David Salon come up with this ingenious idea, basically to try to identify what this antigen is by, you know, collecting the sera of patients. They were using um, patients, not mice. Just, el- just eluding, el- eluding out the antibody. And so basically, you know, they were able, you know, with a combination of molecular techniques, including um, mass spectroscopy, they confirmed it and validated it. And then they, this is where I think the first report of this lag time between proteinuria and PLA2R, you can see a decrease in PLA2R, and they were tracking the same patient, the proteinuria comes down more gradually than the PLA2R levels do. Um, and that you can reference in the summary as well. Um, we put up the figures for that. And so then that makes us fast forward over. And this was huge. 2009. I remember it. I remember being presented at our journal club and um, I was like, I guess a second year fellow, maybe third, just finished second year. And uh, it was huge news at the time. Still is. Yeah. I remember in fellowship, you know, everyone was making a big deal of trying to get a hold of this antibody when they were suspecting membranous. You know, could you potentially not biopsy and just you know, measure this in the blood, which would be nice um, if with specificity. Yeah. Now, just a comment about biomarker. So this is you know a really cool biomarker, but what makes it even cooler is it's causal. So remember, this is an autoimmune immune disease. We have an antibody antigen. So like when you have this antibody. Um, this is causal in disease, and this is different from things like NGAL. How do we know it's causal? What's the, what's the evidence chain that we know that it's causal? Well, I think Beck's study, right, in terms of identifying the, that this is in the subepithelial deposits. So you can identify this in, you find the antibodies in the deposits, the levels go up and down, preceding changes in proteinuria. What if you infuse, if you infuse this antibody into rats, do they get sick? Mice? And this, Pigs. I think this is this is one of the the issues that they still haven't been able to recapitulate that phenotype in a mouse. Um, so again, swap says like what's you know 
we spend 50 years trying to mess around our um so i think there's good evidence supporting what jenny said this is a causal but but so, let me let's, yeah, let's just so, rewind the scientific consensus is it's causal correct it's causal and so when you have a causal biomarker that's something that is actionable on right that is a therapeutic target and is useful for monitoring disease and so that's why i'm saying you know there this discovery was supposed to be uh, monumental for how you would also run clinical trials, right? Because your therapies that you choose should be affecting these antibodies and you can use the antibodies to monitor disease course. Granted, in New England Journal, I don't know how they originally wrote it. I don't know if they had PLA2R as the primary outcome or one of the primary outcomes in the original iteration in 2017. I'm not privy to those details. You're talking but, about a mentor? Um, a mentor, yeah. Uh, but certainly um, it would make sense with the growing body of literature um, at that time, building up to mentor. Uh, this also includes Gemritux, which was um, you know a clinical trial um, looking at rituximab. I got a patient right now, and I think there was, there was even mention of it in the art- article that started with a high titer of APLE2R, started a Montacro, level went to undetectable. That was a year ago, and he still got ton of proteinuria. I was actually right. convinced they I must have had the wrong diagnosis. I went and rebiopsied him. I think oh, maybe he's got a new disease now. Still got membranous. Yeah, I mean, it's going to take a while to clear, right? It's been a so year. That's Come interesting on. that you say that. So, I mean, that, you know, be, could you envision sometime a trial that has just uh, has that phospholipase two receptor as a outcome? Because it was a secondary, but like a primary outcome. Could you build that in? That I don't know. I don't think you can get rid of proteinuria as a primary outcome. Yeah, we've. I think we've discussed this a lot. I, I, and let, if somebody has something else they want to talk about, I'm happy to hear it. But if we're, I mean, I think maybe we should all give a, a you know high level take on this and say how how they're using this information to take care of patients. Okay, you can start. Okay, <laughs> I think for me, when I look at this study, obviously we've known the result for two years now, and now we have the 59 pages of supplementary data to go along with it. We've discussed issues with cyclosporin. I personally haven't used cyclosporin in this disease, and I've had good experience with rituximab, um, often a second-line agent to modified Ponticelli, but I've switched to using it um, frontline. And I think with the ability to monitor phospholipase A2 receptor and the side effect profile, it makes me um, more enthusiastic to use rituximab as a first-line agent. However, I know that it's still not compared to what a lot of people are considering first-line, which is modified Ponticelli. Jenny? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, I've grown up more in the rituximab age. And uh, because I was already, you know, following what this study supports, it's not going to change personally what I do because I'm not part of the um, pro-Ponticelli camp. Uh, But I am curious to know if it ends up swinging anyone over to rituximab. And then um, in a little bit, I guess I can chime in that what was really interesting uh, that Larry Beck, who did join the discussion, I think for the first chat, said that um, there are other cutting edge, more specific and precise therapies coming down the pipeline. And he did mention or hint at something like in, because I posed the question, if you could design your ideal drug for how to treat membranous, that's very precise, doesn't have to follow rituximab or the paradigms of rituximab or cyclosporin or Ponticelli. And he was actually talking about using CAR-T therapy um, to target um, plasma cells and B cells. Um, And so, you know, 
hopefully if that's the case and CAR-T being huge in cancer, if this is true and the pharmaceuticals have already started jumping on this or biotech companies have started jumping on this for engineering purposes, then maybe in a few years, rituximab will will be completely phased out. Because it's immunology, there are tons of potential cutting-edge therapies that are already available for cancer that we could uh, bring over uh, to membranous. Swapna? Despite my cynicism, uh, the, the results are useful for, even for us. So um, in Canada, it's not easy to get rituximab or even cyclosporin, and uh, we have to get pre-authorization and stuff. So uh, this does make our life easier. So it'll be easier for us to get rituximab for our patients. So I suspect, you know, we will still keep uh, Ponticelli as first line. But, you know, for patients for whom we don't want to give cyclophosphamide or who have failed Ponticelli, it'll be easier for us to get rituximab. The answer is you don't want to give cyclophosphamide to anybody, right? <laughs> like, who do you want to give cyclophosphamide to? I don't know. Uh, we, we discussed it at our journal club uh, last week. And um, so we have a specialized GN clinic. Um, so I send all my patients to them now for the last one year or so. And and the guys in the GN clinic, they're all like, no, we are still going to use Pondicelli. So I don't know. This is That's what I was trying to say. Yeah. No, I get it. Yep. Maybe we are different, but... Uh, that's uh, what they say. The, the other thing I would like to mention is there are two, at least two trials going on. So there's the Recyclo trial, which is a rituximab versus um, cyclophosphamide from uh, Italy. So it's sort of like Ponticelli versus rituximab, the kind of trial that I would like to see. It's 86 patients, so it's slightly smaller than this, uh, but you know, uh, it should be nearing completion. And the other one uh, is Starmen, I think, which is uh, tacrolimus and rituximab. And steroids, perhaps, versus, I forget what it is versus, but, you know, so there are more trials in the works, so we'll have more data. But before I finish, I just found that editorial, and I wanted to read a couple of lines from Remuzzi and Ruginenti uh, in, in New England, right? So this is their editorial, and they say, grateful as the renal community should be to the mentor investigators for proving, you know, superior efficacy, etc., etc., Nearly 20 years have elapsed since the first demonstration that rituximab induced remission in such patients. So at this point, one wonders how many patients have been exposed to the side effects of alkylating agents over the time. The medical and scientific community has failed to find alternatives to randomized clinical trials, slowing clinical innovation. Yeah. When somebody is proven right by their theory that this drug was really going to work based on uncontrolled data, and they always cluck, oh, I knew this a long time ago. Yeah, that's a... We do these studies because we had equipoise. We didn't know it was going to work. Exactly. We didn't... And so, yeah, I'm glad that you were very smart in advance, but to say that we've wasted our time and haven't been treating these patients that way... Well, we wouldn't have known that it really was going to work until you did the trial. Mm -hmm. In terms of my high-level takeaway, it seemed like the momentum was already headed towards rituximab and away from calcineurin inhibitors. We had a lot of weakness in calcineurin inhibitors that we've known about for decades that these drugs don't give uh, persistent remission, which is what our patients really want. And I think, you know, even though I look at this study and I'm not convinced that they uh, gave uh, cyclosporin uh, its best shake, uh, I think this is going to be kind of the death knell for use of uh, calcineurin inhibitors in idiopathic membranous. And my sense is what you're going to see is a hierarchy where patients get a trial of uh, rituximab. And if it doesn't stick, if they're the 25% of patients that uh, fail to remain in remission or partial remission, they'll go on to alkylating agents after that. Okay, we are done with the glomerular filtration, and we are on to tubular secretion. 
Uh, Matt, do you have any tubular secretion? I'm not secreting anything. <laughs> I'm done. That's excellent. Swapnil, you got any tubular secretion? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I could rant about code tweeting uh, or retweet with comment, <laughs> but I wouldn't do that. Can you, oh. what, can you get, I'm, I was hiking when this thing exploded. What the hell is this all about? I, I rantorialed <laughs> one. Uh, just to... well, Matt, what's your problem with the quote tweet? Just, I don't understand it. My problem? You don't have a problem? I, 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 I have a problem. So, so, so here, here swap, let me, what's your problem with the quote This tweet? is real easy. I, it take me two, one sentence, okay? First, Swap likes to argue on Twitter. I hadn't okay? noticed. When you start arguing and you steal the conversation, it pisses him off, right? And it would it would make me angry too. But I don't argue on Twitter. And so I just point out cool stuff. And that's my quote tweet is what I do all the time. So I felt personally offended by his just complete lack of understanding about how much I love. No, no, I, 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 I did say I did say in my thread lower down that, you know, using quote tweet to highlight, yeah, yeah, lower down. Down. yeah, to say that, you know, if you just want to highlight something, that's fine. Um, but there are a lot of people who, instead of hitting reply, they hit quote tweet. Uh, that just pisses me off. And and the the other thing is that, you know. Uh, why? Well, I understand. What, what, and why does it piss you off? You should reply to people if you want to reply. You know, it, often people don't understand that they can reply and they use quote tweet to reply. A, a, a lot of people yeah, do that. They're not doing it to highlight saying, so hey. So it breaks the thread. It so is. It breaks, it breaks the, thread. the thread. Exactly. And it's okay. it's completely hard to follow. And you. And. and <laughs> So I did a quote tweet rantorial on his. I don't want to read tweet. that. It's the last. That, that sounds like the most boring tutorial ever. Okay, I get it. Okay. No, no, no. My bigger problem. We weren't going to talk about that, and I forced you to talk about that. So, what is your real tubular secretion? <laughs> so uh, there is this guy called uh, Chris Arnade. I don't know Arnade A R N A D E. I don't know if you follow him. He he was a hedge fund uh, Wall Street trader who gave it all up and uh, then he wandered around the US taking pictures of people with his photograph with a camera and he's now like you know so he would go into he went into uh, the south side of Bronx which I think you should not go into um, and he wanders into all these unsafe areas and he talks to people it's, uh, and he's got a book now out called Dignity uh, so I heard a podcast that he did with uh, Russ Roberts on Econ Talk as well but his Twitter thread is is uh, he used to write for The Guardian and he had all these pictures right of areas that have been devastated by the you know globalization and uh, uh, and all that it's, it's just trying to be you know too serious about it but um, I follow him and uh, I think this uh, I'm going to buy the book uh, what he talks about is very interesting you know we never see that side of life right we are he calls them the front row and the back row rather than say you know black and white or, or rich and poor um, uh, it's just a different way of looking at society and, and people see I think I think medicine we actually get to see a much broader segment of society than a lot of other uh, highly educated people with whatever one thousand years of postgraduate education that we have. Right, right, right. But um, we are still judging them, right? Why are you going to McDonald's? Why are you eating this junk food? And and he talks about McDonald's a lot because it seems in many of these communities, McDonald's is like the one place where you know there's stability. Uh, no one is going to ask you. You know, if if he he uses the example of a, let's say you're a you know homeless person or you're a drug addict and you go to a university, people are going to call the campus police on you. But if you are a homeless person you walk into mcdonald's no one's going to look at you and you know force you to leave or anything like that it's kind of interesting you know so so why people would eat there and go there and stuff like that things that i hadn't thought about jenny what do you got for us keep your eyes out uh hopefully this will be out by the time this podcast actually comes out oh i guarantee but it'll be out before huh? the podcast is out. <laughs> 
<laughs> and if, if you're listening to this podcast and you know you don't follow me on Twitter, I am at J E N N I E J L I N. What I'm going to be doing is our next Ask ASN chat is going to be on how to be a good nephrology fellow, right? And so I thought it'd be actually kind of fun to um, try the experiment. Uh, that was a huge hit on social media. It was doing the choose your own adventure game as Beyonce's assistant. Like how, like how fast would you get fired? What I'm going to do is how, how would you survive a day as a nephrology fellow? No one gets fired, but, um, you know, have a little choose your own adventure game with different scenarios you might run into clinically, resources you can look up, you know, how to take care of yourself while you're on the wards, et cetera. So I think it might be fun to build. It's going to be a little bit, I'm, it's going to, I'm going to have, Wall, uh, this room I'm in right now is going to be papered up like a beautiful mind <laughs> with all the different scenarios and like threads I have to come up with to make this game work. Um, but that's going to be my uh, weekend project. Uh, that sounds very cool. So look out yeah. for yeah, it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. That does sound awesome. My tubular secretion is uh, C. Jazzin. Uh, they run a podcast and uh, normally they uh, their podcast is a short capsule summaries of their articles read by the author, written and read by the authors. But this week, they have uh, one podcast talks about the editorial process, like what happens when you submit an article? How does it get from submission to publication? Um, and that's interesting. But the one I thought that I really liked was it was looking at what should you do when you're asked to review an article? What are they looking for? And well done, really interesting stuff. And I always kind of wondered, like, what are the editors looking for when they ask me to review an article? And here they lay out exactly what they really want to hear from you and kind of how they want you to structure it in three parts. Uh, so we'll put a link in the show notes to that uh, podcast. Um, otherwise, I think we're done here tonight. So on three, mouse models. One, two, three. Mouse, mouse models. models. Mouse models. Mouse models. <laughs> <laughs>